Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported. That means we truly depend on you in order to bring this resource to you. If you don't already support us financially, you could do so. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. You'll see our three friendly yellow buttons there. One says donate. The other says join our crew. The other says become a patron. Click on one of them and fill that out. If you'd like to support us the traditional way, you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And let me thank you for your support. We truly cannot do what we are doing here without it. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Wednesday, September 12th, 2018. Light episode today. I'm going to start a little mini series that I thought would be helpful from uh, Alistair Begg. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program. That dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, help you to slow down, stop, open up your Bible, and compare. Compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. No shortage of crazy things being said out there. We take the time to open up God's Word to compare and contrast with the most popular Pastors, preachers, teachers, conference speakers, self-proclaimed prophets, prophetesses, <gasps> self-appointed apostles and apostolettes, and those generally put forward by the evangelical industrial complex as those whom we need to be listening to, whose books apparently we need to be buying, and whose small group curricula we should be studying instead of the Word of God. Yeah, weird how that works. Over and again, we demonstrate that the steady diet of doctrine, that's teaching, that is put forward for consumption by the average evangelical is far from biblical, far from what God's Word says. There's a whole lot of bad teaching out there. Now, like I said at the very opening of the program, we're going to launch into a kind of three-part mini-series that we're going to do, and the topic has to do with Slaves Obey Your Masters, which is a command given uh, to Christian slaves at the time of the Apostle Paul's writing of his epistle to the church at Ephesus. So mid-portion of the first century. And the reason I want to do this is uh, because, number one, Alistair Begg does a fine job. Now, he and I are in two different theological camps. He is Reformed, which means he's a Calvinist. I am not Reformed. I am a Lutheran. And so there is actually some uh, significant differences between the Lutherans and the Reformed. That being said, he does a fine exegetical work on this portion of of, uh, the book of Ephesians. And the reason I want to play it is because uh, the, the bad teaching that exists out there regarding Christians doing their good works. If, you know, I were to just pull the audience of Fighting for the Faith, especially the newer listeners, and ask them what a good work is. 
you know, Jesus wants us to do good works. Ephesians 2.10 says that we are created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he has prepared in advance for us to do. So if I were to ask you, what is a good work? You know, I, I would hear a lot of answers like, well, volunteering at church in the nursery or volunteering you know, at church in the parking lot, or uh, going to a third world nation and digging freshwater wells, and you know, going and being a missionary and things like that. Now, granted, all of those are good works, but over and again, what we find is that a significant number of Christians across the spectrums of theology, by the way, oftentimes are like unaware that the Bible explicitly teaches that our good works are done in very ordinary ways. And so uh, when you read the back half of the book of Ephesians uh, in chapter 6, wives submitting to your husband as to Christ, that is a good work. So being a faithful spouse. Husbands loving your wives as Christ has loved the church, that's a good work. Children obeying your parents, Good work. Being a good father or mother and not exasperating your children, but bringing them up in proper instruction uh, with it, you know, as, you know, it, giving them an education so that they can thrive and survive and do well uh, as adults, raising them in the Christian faith. These are good works. And back in the day when slavery was a commonplace, you know, I think they estimate that you know, was it a third? A third of the population of the Roman Empire, they were slaves. They did not own themselves. Now, we're, we are by no means advocating slavery. But what happens when you don't even own yourself and you're a slave? How do you do your good works? Answer, by obeying your masters and doing a good job as a slave. This is pleasing in the sight of Christ. And so the idea here is, is that this three-part little mini-series, as we're listening to this together, I would like you to really strongly consider that that uh, your good works, you have so much more of them than you possibly could imagine if you thought that your good works were limited to, you know, churchy things or missionary work and stuff like that, which they are not. So, with that, let's uh, get into part one today, part one of Alistair Begg's uh, teaching on slaves and masters. Here we go. Please turn with me to the letter of Paul to Philemon, which is snuggled in between uh, Titus and Hebrews. I find it usually easier to go from the back forwards and find it. Sometimes the reading is finished by the time I finally tracked it down, but... Uh, the letter of Paul to Philemon. And my thought is that this may give us something for our time this evening, but uh, for now I read it as something of a cross-reference for this morning. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. Grace to you, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith 
may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus. I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I'm sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent, in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. For this, perhaps, is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it. To say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you, as do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. Well, I invite you to turn to, no surprise, Ephesians chapter 6, and read from verse 5, bond servants or slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Masters, do the same to them, and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. Father, we pray that as we turn to the Bible, we might have the enabling of the Holy Spirit both to speak and to hear, to understand, to believe, to figure things out, to obey. Accomplish your purposes, we pray. For Jesus' sake, amen. Well, once again, it is important for us to remind ourselves that when we come to this material, 
that Paul is not writing, as it were, just to the man or the woman on the streets of Ephesus, but that he is writing, as per the introduction of the letter way back in chapter 1, he is writing to those whom he describes as faithful in Christ Jesus. Uh, Those who later on in chapter 5, he reminds, are light in the Lord. Those who were once darkness, he says, you are now light in the Lord. And in the 18th verse of chapter 5, those who are not getting drunk with wine, but who instead are being filled with the Holy Spirit. And as they are filled with the Holy Spirit, uh, these uh, brothers and sisters in Ephesus and indeed all the readers of this letter in Christ, are learning what it means to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, I belabor that point uh, expressly because it is very possible to come to any portion of the Bible in such a way as to miss the fact that the Bible is ultimately to introduce us to Jesus— to introduce us to Jesus as the one who has done for us what we could never do for ourselves, uh, both in living the life that God intends and in dying death in the place of sinners. And that it is in our awareness of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done that we are then able to come to the places of application and recognize that this is not simply a form of moralism, do this and do that and don't do this and don't do that, but rather it is the dynamic of the work of the Spirit of God quickening those who are the faithful in Christ and enabling us to become what God intends for us to be. Um, He has described uh, these individuals uh, back again in chapter 1 as those who have heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and have believed. Now, not everybody who has heard the word of truth here Sunday by Sunday at Parkside uh, has actually uh, understood what has been said. And that may be you. You've been listening for a while, but you have never actually come personally to believe. You haven't settled the matter of whether uh, this really is truth and whether this is a matter of great and eternal significance. Well, God is at work, and he will accomplish his purposes. But to those who have understood what Paul is saying here, then you will have realized what these individuals realized too. Namely, that when the Spirit of God comes to live in the life of an individual, it changes everything, and it changes particularly the way in which a person thinks. First of all, the way in which we think. And that is the point that Paul is making. And that is why he has narrowed down to these three crucial areas of life for everybody. And nothing more significant than the issue of husband and wife, or the challenges of parent and child. Or as we now come to this morning, uh, the area of industrial relations or human resources and the everyday events of life in which some report to others, and others are in charge of them. So let's be clear about that. Uh, The gospel changes our view of things, and it is a change that is a wonderful change, but it is a radical change. Remember, we often quote C.S. Lewis when he says, I believe in Christianity, 
as I believe in the rising of the sun, not simply because I can see it, but because by it I can see everything else. So that the gospel changes our view of marriage, changes our understanding of what it means to be a wife or a child or an employer or an employee. And here in this paragraph that we begin this morning in verse 5, he is dealing with the impact of the Christian faith in the workplace. All right? Now, the ESV uh, uses bond servants. If you have the same uh, translation as I have, you will notice that it has a little one there. Then at the bottom of the page, it's translating the Greek verb, uh, the Greek noun doulos. Then it refers us to the preface and so on. Uh, it, it simply means slaves, slaves. And uh, he is addressing those who are slaves, and he is addressing those who are the masters of the slaves. Now, the very fact that he's doing so indicates something to us immediately, namely, that within the congregation in Ephesus, presumably sitting side by side, as this letter was given its first reading, were those who were to be found in each category. Those whose role in life was within the servitude of a bondservant, and those who were in the position of having slaves within their home. Now, when we come to this, it is immediately a challenge for many of us, and certainly is for me, to make sure that I am not immediately sidetracked in dealing with this by viewing this material through the prism of the Civil War, of immediately coming to this and seeking to contextualize it in light of 150 years ago uh, when we are confronted with the horrendous nature of circumstances here in our own nation. For those of us who have lived in a country where slavery has been abolished for more than a century and a half, we recognize that it is hard to conceive how the ownership of another person could be countenanced in this way. So let's just acknowledge that and the challenge that is represented in it in coming to the text. The easy thing for me to do is simply to say, you will notice that this is bondservants. It could be translated slaves. What it actually means is employers. So let's talk about employers and let's talk about employees. But you're too smart for that because you're sitting there going, now, wait, wait, wait a minute. There's an underlying question here that needs to be addressed. And so I want to do something with it this morning. I want to tell you that I've been greatly helped. You know that I read novels, and I've told you in the past of the, the novels by the author Robert Harris, and particu particularly his uh, Cicero trilogy, uh, written concerning uh, life in the Roman Empire. And uh, the voice in those novels is the voice of Tiro, who is Cicero's slave. And as he uh, serves in the home of Cicero, uh, he uh, serves, first of all, uh, for the majority of his life as a slave and then as a freedman. But even after he is granted his freedom by Cicero, he remains within the context of Cicero's home to serve him because of the relationship that exists between them. And the relationship that existed between them was that of master and slave without question. 
But in actual terms, uh, Tiro was neither socially nor physically nor economically deprived unduly in that context. And he was like thousands, millions actually, of slaves at that time in the Roman Empire. So the context in which Paul writes is much more that context than our context this morning, or even our context 150 years ago or 200 years ago. It's been estimated that at this time, about 35% of the population in the Roman Empire comprised those who were bond servants or slaves. So if you think about that, you realize how fundamentally important these individuals were and the tasks that they fulfilled for the well-being of the empire. Now, there is no question that many of them are treated brutally, cruelly, and so on. But the fact is, to quote Westerman of an earlier era, the institution of slavery was a fact of Mediterranean economic life so completely accepted as a part of the labor structure of the time that one cannot correctly speak of the slave problem in antiquity. In other words, you can't speak of it simply in problematic terms when you're dealing with that era, given all that was represented in it. And just parenthetically, we need to recognize that there was no racial component in the Roman Empire. There was nothing of that which was as reprehensible as what was being tackled in America in the Civil War. So again, I say to you, when you come to this, do not start from there and then try and read this in light of that. Rather, read this, and then once we come to terms with this, then we can begin to apply this to that, whatever that may be. I hope, I hope that is straightforward to you. Now, the fact uh, that Paul addresses uh, the bond service or the slaves in this way is actually in keeping uh, with Westerman's assessment, that they were responsible members of the Christian community, and he appeals to them as such. Now, resisting the temptation to just make a quantum leap into uh, how has is, how is your boss been treating you right, lately? And have you been turning up for work, uh, you know, on time and so on? Which are all matters of importance. Before we get to that, let's acknowledge, first of all, what I have had to acknowledge as I've been studying it this week, that the most striking thing, first of all, for me, is what Paul doesn't say. In fact, the most striking thing for me is what the New Testament doesn't say. Think about it. He does not say to the slaves, now that you are a Christian, you are free of your obligation to your master. He does not say to the masters, now that you're a Christian, you must set your slaves free. Now, just, just think about that for a moment. It's important. You say, but isn't Paul the one who wrote in Galatians 3 that in Christ there is neither bond servant nor 
uh, free man. There is neither slave nor master. There is neither male nor female. There is neither Greek or barbarian or Jew or Scythian or bond or free. That one is all and all is one and so on. Yes, he wrote that. What was he talking about there? He's talking about what it means to be saved. He was talking about the nature of salvation. If you think about it logically, you realize that of course there were Jews and of course there were Gentiles. Of course there were masters and of course there were slaves. What he's saying is, what we often say, and that is, that, is that, that men and women are equal in the sight of God, but men and women are not equal. It's a silly thing to say you're equal. I'll race you out to your car, and we're not equal. You will beat me for sure. I can play about three notes in the piano. You can play the entire piano. We're not equal. No, in the sight of God, he has made us. And in Jesus, there is an equality that is grounded in salvation. But that reality does not alter the social, economic aspects of our existence. And so when you come to this, you realize that Paul is not calling for the abolition of slavery. The subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and the gentle, but also to the unjust. That's not Paul, that's Peter in First Peter 2. He's doing the same thing. He says to these believers, now if you want to commend the gospel, this is what you are to do. You are to be subject to your masters. You're not involved in insurrection. God has instituted a structure in the world, and that structure is there, and this is the part that you play. Well, am I only supposed to be kind and nice and good and subservient if the person is a good and a gentle master? No, even if he or she is an unjust master. Okay, two observations. One, we might say, practically speaking, and the other, theologically speaking. And we'll spend the, the balance of our time theologically, not practically. Okay? Practically speaking, practically speaking, Paul was in no position to bring about the abolition of slavery. He couldn't have done it. If he had suggested to these individuals that they operate in a different way from that which was expected within the framework of the empire then sure it would have had an impact in some way, in some small way. But 35% of the population were involved in slavery. There was no way. In fact, the reverse would have been the case. Not only would it have had very little impact on the practice, but it may well practically have precipitated the extermination of the fledgling church. Because what we know... We don't know much, many of us, but what we know of the Roman Empire, and we're thinking here in terms of Nero, this is not Mr. Nice Guy who's in charge of the place. What we know of the Roman Empire is that whenever something went wrong in the Roman Empire, who got the blame? The Christians. They said it's the Christians. The Christians are atheists. Why would they say Christians are atheists? Well, because the Christians did not believe in all the gods that were in the pantheon. And since they didn't believe in all the gods in the pantheon, then there is atheists. And as a result of that, the pressure that was on them was significant. If Christianity then, in that context, had taken up, if you like, or taken on 
the institution of slavery, then the Roman Empire would have just crushed it into oblivion. And all the power to do so. You see, God moves in mysterious ways. His wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and he rides upon the storm. That's why I prayed this morning concerning North Korea. We, 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 we trust and hope and pray that the news that will eventually come out of North Korea is that although the church has been brutalized and driven under, underground, that it may actually have been thriving, although we know nothing of it at all. Certainly that was true of the Cultural Revolution. The church is barred and the gates closed and the Christians driven underground. Everybody would have said, well, if it was only different from that, then it would have flourished greatly. God knows. All right, we are going to pause right there and pay some bills. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there, at Christian. Quick break when we come back. The balance of today's lesson, part one of Alistair Bake's teaching series on slaves and masters. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. Relevance Schmelevance. We preach Christ crucified for our sins. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. I've had enough of this sissy, pansy, cunning, photo-written music you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. Holidays, Bird Cage Theatre presents Church Day Select. Deep in the Australian wilderness, and also the typhoid infested waters of the Bongo River, Captain Worthington and his ragtag group of men have found themselves to be hopelessly lost. Surrounded by the vicious savages of the Hamuku tribe, and now the TP has run out. It's been 27 days without food, and Private Jenkins doesn't care. Oh, do shut up, Nigel! We don't need you narrating every little thing that goes on. It's bad enough already. We don't need you reminding everyone about it. Sorry. 
Now, gentlemen, the hour is dying. There's not much hope of us getting out of this predicament with our lives or sanity. What are we going to do, Captain? Well, we can do one of two things. We can either die in a blaze of glory, charging the Hibuku tribe in battle, or sit on the riverbank saying to ourselves, Oh, Mommy, Mommy, please make the bad people go away. I vote for the second one. Shut the noise, you pansy! Now, Captain, I have an idea that might just save our hides from the impending doom on the other side of the tree line. Well, out with it, man. Out with it. I happen to have... In my possession, a copy of Zondervan's latest book, The Grimoire of Modern Prayer. Well, that's excellent news. We have TP again. Huzzah! Woo-hoo. No, no, no. We're not using it for that. Then what exactly are we using it for? Uh, it says this. With this volume, you can command and control the very will of God with relative ease. Oh. Are you sure we can do that? Well, the, the book says we can. Is there any proof? Well, Stephen Furtick did write the introduction where he explains how it's changed his life. Well, um, h- how does it work? Simple. We can choose from any one of these prayers. Captain Worthington, a book approaching! Blasted! Perkins, get your act together and start reading from that book. It's our only chance. I don't know which one to read first. Which ones do you have to choose from? Well, there's the Scenting Prayer, the Circle Maker Prayer, the Prayer of Jabez. The Circle one. Let's go with that one. Okay, the book says to draw a circle around what you're praying for. Well, that's us. Quick, men, draw a circle in the dirt around us. Step two, begin to pray for whatever it is that you're in need of. I really want a Ferrari. A Ferrari. You nitwit, we need protection. Now pray, audaciously. Oh, Lord, we are not going to leave this circle until you rescue us from our enemies. Amen. Thank God, Nigel! Are you sure? Pretty sure. Unless he can breathe without his head being attached to his neck. Oh, dear. Well, there goes our narrator. What are we going to do, sir? Well, the circle prayer didn't work, so let's try something else. Packins! Working on it, sir. I, I think I got it. <laughs> I, I don't believe it, sir. The Hubuku the, tribe, they now have catapults. Jumping Jehoshaphat. This next prayer had better work, Perkins. This one will work. It's the uh, Sun Sanso prayer. What good will that do? It's in the middle of the night. It doesn't matter what you think. This is sure to work. We just have to have audacious enough faith to ask God for the impossible. You heard the man. Get praying. I still want a Ferrari, a pet raptor, no debts. Ooh, and better sex. You're just not getting this, are you? Captain, they, 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 no, no, have, have, Well, this is impossible. Hi, Chris Rosebro here to talk about our longtime featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Doesn't matter if you're traveling for business reasons or for pleasure. Doesn't matter if you're traveling within the United States or abroad. Cheapo Air is the place for you to save literally hundreds of dollars on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. On the side of our website, you'll see our ad banners. Look at the ad banner for Cheapo Air and look on it. There's a promo code. Write the promo code down, click on the ad banner, and then book your travel at the Cheapo Air website, and you'll have the opportunity to enter that promo code for additional savings. Again, fightingforthefaith.com. Write down the promo code, click on the ad banner, and save money on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars today. 
Hey everyone, it's Rex here to tell you about a product that I use on a daily basis. It's Coffee by Gillespie. It's delicious. It's got the caffeine you need to be a functioning member of society and it's, it's coffee. There's all sorts of different blends to choose from that are themed alongside the church calendar. So not only does it taste insanely good, but it's also liturgical. Somehow. All you have to do is order it online at gillespie.coffee, and it'll arrive at your door in a convenient, resealable bag filled with either whole bean or pre-ground coffee. I personally like mine as whole bean because it goes so well with milk. Yeah. Now that's what I call a balanced breakfast. So head on over to gillespie.coffee and get some. That's G-I-L-L-E-S-P-I-E dot coffee. Rex out! Listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to become supremely dissatisfied with your church, especially if they're not rightly handling God's Word and teaching God's Word in depth. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. And you can partner with us. It is a partnership. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our three friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. The other says become a patron. When you join our crew, you get to pick your rank in our crew, and rank is based upon your monthly commitment. Lowest rank is Powder Monkey at $9.95 a month. After that, Gunner's Mate at $24.95 a month. From there, Master Gunner at $49.95 a month, and then Quartermaster at $99.95 a month. Joining our crew, great way to support us. If you'd like to make a one-time contribution, click on, click on the Donate button. If you'd like to become a patron on Patreon, click on the Become a Patron button. If you'd like to support us the traditional way, you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And let me thank you for your support. We truly cannot do what we are doing here without it. Here is the next part of Slaves and Masters by Alistair Begg, Part 1. Here we go. The expansion of the church in the first three centuries was a church that expanded under persecution. Anyway, in practical terms, uh, we could make those observations. More importantly, though, is to think theologically. To think theologically. In other words, to recognize that the reason Paul does what he does is because he is thinking properly. And the way in which we need to approach challenging issues such as this is by also thinking properly, learning to think in terms of what the Bible teaches. You see, Paul is not driven by pragmatism here. He's not driven by pragmatism. He's driven by his theological convictions. Now, what is a foundational theological conviction for Paul? Well, it is this that God has entrusted to him and to those who serve with him 
the message of reconciliation. So, for example, when he writes to the Corinthians in in 2 Corinthians 5, he says, In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. We are ambassadors for Christ. And so we implore you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. In other words, Paul, if you like, Scripture, is concerned first and foremost with man's relationship to God. That that is the great issue always. That God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. That the condition of man before God in light of eternity is and always will be the driving import of gospel proclamation. That's why Peter, for example, in the passage that I just alluded to in 1 Peter chapter 2, before he says what we just noted, he says, I appeal to you as pilgrims and as strangers. All right? So, theologically, the great issue is this issue. God is holy, man is sinful, man is separated from God. The message that we're given to proclaim is that God, in Christ, reconciles men and women to himself. We're also given to proclaim that message in the short journey of our lives, which is a very short journey, because we're not here forever. We are merely pilgrims and we're strangers. Therefore, the issues of this world, as significant as they are, are not the great issues. The great issues of the world relate to the reality of our separation from God, of the provision that God has made for us in that need, and of the fact that we are here for a short time. And Paul recognized that. That's why in 1 Corinthians 9, he says, My great concern is to win as many as possible. To win as many as possible. So if he had taken on, if you like, the cause of slavery, he would never have won hardly anybody at all. Because all he would have been talking about all the time was, you know, this shouldn't be happening. Of course it shouldn't be happening. But that wasn't the message being given to proclaim. You see, it alters everything. It absolutely alters everything. Why is the church in the world today? We're not in the world today to reform the world. Our mandate in the world is not political, it's not social, and it's not economic. The fact that many of us have lived through a period of time in the United States whereby the social, political, and economic concerns have increasingly encroached upon the minds of those who should know better and have begun to take on virtually a life of their own, whereby we have begun to be seduced by the idea that these really are the issues, that if we could fix this and fix this and fix this, then we would be fine. But we were never invited to fix this and this and this. The calling of the church is to proclaim the gospel. And whenever that which is central, namely the gospel, becomes peripheral, then that which is peripheral inevitably becomes central. Whatever you want to use as the issue. In an earlier era, Martin Lloyd-Jones makes this amazing observation. I found it so helpful I wrote it down in full. Listen. 
He's speaking to a congregation probably in the 1940s, maybe 50s in the UK. We hear he says so much today about defending Western civilization from attack. That is all wrong. As a Christian, I am not primarily concerned about Western civilization. I am interested in the kingdom of God. And I am as anxious that men and women behind the Iron Curtain should be saved as that man on this, that men on this side of the Iron Curtain should be saved. We must not take up a position of antagonism towards those whom we want to win for Christ. If we spend our whole time talking against them, we will never win them. Now, let's just stay there in the 1940s at the height of the Cold War. What is Lloyd-Jones saying? Lloyd-Jones is saying the whole of the Western world is preoccupied by the threat of communism. Many of you want me to stand up in the pulpit and keep talking about communism. Communism is a real problem, and the communists are doing this, and the communists are doing that. He says, but I'm not going to do that. Why? Because I want communists to hear about Jesus. Now, you can apply it in any way you want. Because if we're to do that and bring in some person, a Christian person, a pastor, whoever it is, says, you know, the great issue of the world today is the destruction of Western civilization. We have a problem with this, and we have a problem there, and the gender issue is upside down, and marriage has gone to pot, and we don't know what we're doing with this, and so on, and the next thing. You, you, you want to see people get up out of their seats and get excited? I guarantee you. It's happened for the last 50 years in America. And what has happened in terms of people being converted? Very little. Very little. Because it's not the issue. If Paul had decided to take this on, the expansion of the gospel would not be as we have now known it. God is sovereign in these things. You see... The great concern, the great concern is that the gospel might frame our thinking. And it is the gospel which frames Paul's thinking. Because Paul recognizes that the gospel works everywhere. The gospel works in jails. The gospel works in politics. The gospel works in science. The gospel works in the arts. The gospel works in the children's ministry. The gospel works in the nursing homes. The gospel works. And so Paul, as he is addressing these Ephesian believers, is speaking to them in the social context in which they find themselves. And his responsibility is not to disrupt that environment, but it is instead to show them the difference that the gospel makes. You see, the gospel is the answer to slavery. The gospel is the only answer, actually. The gospel is the answer to human trafficking. The gospel is the answer to the upside-down world, morally, in which we presently live. That's why I read from Philemon. And perhaps tonight we can say something of it. But it was the gospel 
that brought about the reconciliation between, between Onesimus the slave and Philemon his master. So although the New Testament does not call for the abolition of slavery, what does history tell us? That the abolition of slavery was brought about by Christian men and women. Christian men and women. What was it that caused a wealthy, high-ranking member of society called William Wilberforce to take on the plight of slaves? Answer? The gospel. The gospel. You see, the gospel changed his heart, changed his mind, changed his mind about everything. And caused him then to say, this is wrong and this must be addressed. You say, well, aren't you talking out of both sides of your mouth? No. Careful. The distinction between the responsibility of the church to proclaim the gospel and then for the pastor teacher to proclaim the implications of the gospel in the outworking of that in every area of life. So that Wilberforce did not sit under a steady diet of non-Bible teaching, whereby his pastor was constantly going on and on and on about the issue of the day. He sat under the instruction of the Bible, whose pastor was going on and on and on always about the gospel. And he realized that when the gospel changed him, he had a role to play in society. And so do you. But it's not my role. Now, this is just by way of introduction. We're going to have to come back to these principles and try and work them out in, in our own uh, day and time and place. And it does relate to all of that, as we will see. But the reason that industrial relations are in the position they're in, the reason that you have all that friction in your office, the reason that the unions can't agree with management and management can't deal with unions and so on is what? Man is sinful. Man is selfish. Man is self-centered. Self-centered. And man needs a savior. So how will man get a savior? Only if people share the gospel. The gospel. Now, it's been my immense privilege to live here now for all this time, since the 3rd of August, 1983. I wasn't hardly in the door in this place before I began to be besieged by well-meaning individuals saying to me, you know, you are, it's, it's your responsibility, given the platform you have in your pulpit, to take on the issues of our time. So they want me to address abortion. They want me to address Supreme Court nominations. They want me to give out literature in support of various uh, uh, candidates for office. They want me to tackle uh, the question of racism. They want me to do all of these things. And as best that I've been able, I haven't done a single one of them. Why? I want you to know that I care passionately about abortion. 
I care passionately about racism. I was exercised beyond measure regarding appointments to the Supreme Court. But that's me, as an individual citizen, exercising the privileges of democracy. It is not me as your pastor and your teacher. You see, because at the end of the day, the real transformative work in a nation is the transformative work of the gospel. When in the north of Ireland there was a great movement of the Spirit of God, in the Harland and Wolves shipbuilding factories, the management began to be overwhelmed by the amount of machinery that was being returned to them that had been stolen by the employees to the extent that the management issued a statement that was to the effect, we get it, don't bring us any more stuff. Now, how was it that they began to bring all this back? Because they were transformed by the gospel. The Gospels changed them, and they, in turn, were changed. In other words, somebody proclaimed to them uh, the wonder of who Jesus is. Why, is. why is America as ungodly as it is? Because there aren't enough Christians. We need more Christians. How do you get more Christians? By preaching about the issues of the day? No. By preaching the gospel. Why does Paul do, do what he does? Because he understands this. You see, before you come, when you come in your Bible to issues like this, if you don't stand far enough back and address the big principles that underlie all of our understanding of things, then it will be possible to make all kinds of direct and immediate applications that may in part be helpful, but by and large may miss the point entirely. And that's what we want to guard against. The more Christians, the more Christian thinking. The more Christian thinking, the more Christian action. In art, in science, in politics, in media, in education, and in medicine. But if I were to forsake my calling, I may cause you to be sidetracked into thinking that these issues were the great issues to the neglect of the message of God's Word. If you read history, and, and alongside it, church history, you'll find, a, you'll find a number of fascinating things, and with this I'll just stop, but you, you, you'll find that the, that the people in pulpits, pastors, who took on the issues of the day and, you know, made it into the newspapers who in Britain, you know, during the Crimean War or uh, whatever it might be, they were sort of, this is the great evil of the day, you know, and so the press picked it up and said, you know, Reverend so-and-so is really on his game and everything else. Meanwhile, over in some little chapel, there's a pastor, and he's saying to his people who are reading the Bible, and this is who Jesus is, and this is why it's given. In the economy of God, that fellow, nobody knows who in the world he is. He's, he's long gone, forgotten, nobody cares. 
And the apparently insignificant work that was going on, where the pastor was just simply day by day proclaiming to his people the unsearchable riches of Christ, that was what yields. That is what yielded and what yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness. You see, think, think about it. Think about all the, all, all the work that is going on unseen in small congregations with faithful pastors just sticking with the gospel. That's why we have basics. To say to our brothers, we believe this. We believe that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. We believe that the greatest need of man is to be reconciled to God. When God reconciles him to himself and changes his way of thinking, then that man, that woman, will engage in the privileges and opportunities that are there for them to effect great change, social change, and so on. But don't, whatever you do, start to tell your people that there is only one economic formula that can be true to the New Testament. Don't, whatever you do, start to tell your people that trade unions are ipso facto from the devil. Don't, whatever you do, wrap any of that stuff around the saving work of Jesus Christ because the gospel works everywhere and works through individuals whose lives have been embraced by it and who in turn are embracing others. That's why, that's why Wesley in his great hymn finally writes the two lines. He says, "'Tis all my business here below to cry, Behold the Lamb. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world." You see, the great slavery this morning that each of us faces is the slavery to which Jesus referred in John chapter 8 when these religious people come to him and they're very proud of their status and so on. And he says, you know, you really need to think about this, that everyone who sins is a slave to sin. That's the real slavery. And if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. First that, then this. Not this, then that. May God help us in these things. Father, thank you that uh, we find our refuge in Christ alone. And as we are confronted by these difficult and complex and uncomfortable areas, we ask that you will help us to do as Paul has done, and that is to frame things in light of the great principles of your Word. Uh, we thank you that beyond the affairs of time, there is a throne that is fixed in heaven. Beyond the ephemeral nature of our earthly pilgrimage, there is a new heaven and a new earth. And so we pray that we might understand, as McShane used to say, that I am a dying man, preaching to dying men and women. Lord, fill us afresh with an understanding of the gospel and a desire to live for it. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So what'd you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions, 
of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there, at pirate Christian. Until tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ, his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. <laughs>